Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 29th, 2019. It is a Tuesday. It's time for a Just Jack show where we take a, a single subject and we kind of take it apart for about an hour to an hour and a half together. Today is episode 2369, title of the show, A New Look at the Modern Homestead. I don't know if that's the right title for it. I, just Here's what happened. This morning I woke up and said, Jack, you don't have a topic so what should you do? And I thought, you know what I should do? I should reward the people that have been following me on Instagram and let them help me pick the topic. So I made a quick video in the uh, kitchen and um, basically said, hey, I'm thinking about either doing a new look at the Modern Homestead or a whole show on just seed starting. And uh, the Modern Homestead won one about two to one over seed starting. So it was a, kind of a concession. I threw a little section in today's show on seed starting that will, I think, answer the most common questions about it. But basically, that group thing got to decide the topic of today's show. Kind of what I had in mind with this is, how do we make homesteading, um, for the average person, especially the person that's new to the concept, or maybe it's just frustrated with the concept, simplified? How do we do it in a way that actually delivers at least some of what it promises, you know, actually saving money? actually providing food that you actually want to eat, etc., uh, actually making your life more enjoyable, actually feeling good, actually feeling more connected to uh, the planet and our environment, actually being more involved in your local community, actually doing the things that we actually talk about, but often end up not getting done with homesteading because it becomes so complicated, because it becomes expensive for a variety of reasons. And that's what we're going to cover today. Try to how do we pare this down and maybe do less but get more bang for the buck. In fact, we're going to kind of dig into what I mean when I say bang for the buck. I think most of the time when you say bang for the buck, you think, okay, so if I can buy uh, one big bag of potatoes for, you know, $10 or I can buy a small bag of potatoes for $5. But it turns out it's opposite of what you would normally think. The two small bags are actually more than the big bag. Then I'm better off buying the small bag because I get more for my money. And that is definitely one way to look at bang for the buck. But when it comes to homesteading, there's a lot more that goes into your homesteading than just money. There's also your time. I know time is money, but often we, we kind of separate that in, in our minds, uh, especially at the home you know, homestead or just house level, like I was going to be there anyway. Yeah, but you're putting time into it. And also, well, we'll get into it in just a minute, but we're going to include things like, you know, your enjoyment, because that's something we don't think about as well. So let's, let's dive into this today and, and kind of try to maybe renew some people's uh, view on homesteading and kind of give you a blueprint not for the whole thing as it will be in the end, but the core principles of homesteading that you can take and pick what you want to use from this core and over the next season either get, you know, get to the point where you actually feel like your home is a bit of a homestead or if you've been homesteading and you're frustrated, kind of tighten up to the point where you feel really good about what you're doing. We'll get to all that more in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. Hey, we're talking about growing stuff today. 
one of the things you definitely should be growing is herbs. But if you're like me, there's no way you could grow all the herbs that you need or at least want in your life, and especially when it comes to medicinal herbs. The place I know to find the best herbal stuff, and I don't care if it's pre-made preparations, capsules, uh, tinctures, or raw herb and raw material to make your own herbal preparations is Western Botanicals, a real company with real people that really care about you. If you pick up the phone and call them for customer service, you're going to talk to a real person that, like I said, does care about you as a customer, and they're going to be in Utah, not New Delhi or Hong Kong or something like that. You're going to talk to a person that's actually in the company that actually can do something to help you out and wants to. Uh, they have everything you can think of. It's legal and herbal in the United States. It's probably at Western Botanicals. Uh, on, on a, in addition uh, to that, everything that they use is either organically grown or wildcrafted. And they do a wonderful discount program that you get for free as an MSB member. So make sure you take advantage of that as well. It'll give you 25% off everything they sell. Next up today, ready-made resources. The company that, you know, you really don't have to explain it, do you? This is, this is a lesson in branding, guys. Do what you say and say what you do. And if you can get the name of your company, you've got it made. Ready-Made Resources has all the resources for your prepping and your homesteading. Ready-Made, ready to go. Point, click, buy on their website. Great service, great pricing, and a company you can count on. They've been with us as a sponsor for about eight years now, and they will take care of you. I promise you they will, because if they wouldn't, they wouldn't still be here at this point. You know, guys, I'm, I'm pretty tough on people when it comes to uh, maintaining a relationship with them as a sponsor. They don't take care of my people. they got to go out to the woodshed and beyond. Ready-made resources, everything you need from the tactical to the practical, guns to gardens, you'll find at their website, readymaderesources.com. And just real quick before we dive in today, let me remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Look, you want to help support this show? Become a member. That's, that's the number one way you can make sure this show's going to be here for you. And it's cheap. It comes out to about 18 cents an episode. You can join for five bucks a month to give it a shot. Cancel if you don't like it. You can join for 50 bucks a year and save a little bit of money. You do the math on the 50 bucks a year. Again, it's less than 20 cents an episode to support the show. But this ain't PBS. I'm not going to send you a handbag and a coffee cup. You're going to get discounts on stuff you're probably buying anyway. We just added a new discount provider. I'll give you another sneak peek at another one that's probably coming along in a week or two. Uh, this is one I just want to kind of get a little bit more hands-on experience with the product itself, but it's a fertilizer product. Uh, I can't see a world in which it's not going to be fantastic based on what it is and where it comes from. And uh, guys already, man, he's fired up to do a discount for you guys on it. So I'm going to keep working, as always, to improve the value of your membership and all I ask of you is to consider becoming a member today if you're not already one. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics and firefighters and stuff like that, any of you guys qualify for a service discount, either because your prior service, active duty, retired, doesn't matter. If you've ever done the job at all, you qualify. You can email me with service TSPC service discount in the subject line. Do that before, not after you join. Everybody else, just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members, and you can sign up there. Real quick, just one more reminder on uh, on the, going to the website. You're on your phone, the survival. You should have me bookmarked, but if you don't, you get over the site. You always use our short URL, tspc.co. Uh, all right, let's dig into this. So, again, I wanted to come at this a little bit differently today from maybe some shows we've done in the past. We try to talk about everything you could do. I, I think... What we're going to do today, too, is I'm going to try to stick to stuff 
that could be done like from a quarter acre suburban lot all the way up to small acres, like one of five acres. I live on three, it'd be a good example. Um, but I'm going to stick to like, even if you have that size property, like designing in permaculture, what we call the zone one, the stuff that would be, we kind of confined to about a quarter to a half acre, depending on, you know, the property itself. Um, my personal opinion is as homesteading became all the rage in the past decade, too many people took the approach of how much can I do versus what can I do that will do the most for me and that I will most enjoy doing. Um, you know, I, I think about all the posts that I see like in the Regen Ag group and on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that of all these amazing ideas And generally, when you get this amazing revolutionary way that we're going to feed the entire planet or something in our backyards, uh, it's always an infographic or something somebody did up with, you know, there's not, there's not an actual picture of it actually doing what it's supposed to do. Or you see, like, well, you can do this and you can do that. And, you, and even when it is real systems that really work, they're never all together in one place. But they present it like it's just easy. Like you just whip it up, and then you can live your whole life in your backyard, and you'll never be hungry. Um, and, and it's it's one thing to to whip that up and to make it look like, hey, we can provide every need you would ever imagine in a little three-two home on a tenth of an acre. It's quite another thing to actually build it, though, isn't it? And if you did build it, it's another thing to be able to maintain it and keep up with it. So I wanted to take a more realistic approach today, one that will lead more people to figure out what they can do to get maximum bang for the buck out of it. And again, I wanted to start off with what is bang for the buck here? Uh, first and foremost, I think it is what will give me the most return, however I define that, for the amount of work that I put into it. You know, is this something I have to do a lot of work on all the time? Is this something I have to do a lot of work in the beginning and then almost no work? Is this something I have to do a significant amount of work and then little bits of work down the road? And I think we should examine each project with that mindset, and we should look for the ones, minimal input, maximum output, and do those first. Um, what's going to be the most enjoyment that I'm going to get out of the build and the maintenance and having it around in general. So a lot of times you might have a project that you're really not looking forward to building it, but you really are looking forward to having it. And sometimes that can move up the priority list. If we can make sure that this is not some form of intellectual masturbation, that I think it's going to be this really great thing. Is it really going to do what I think it's going to do for me? Then the other thing is a lot of times when you, we feel like, well, I'm really not going to enjoy building it, it's probably just because you haven't done it before. And so you have doubts about your ability to actually do it. Unless it's something that's really going to hurt you or cause permanent damage to your property, just get on with it and get doing it. Just And, and do it small first and see if it works for you. And you'll find out that most of the things that you have self-doubt about, you can pull off. A lot of the skill sets and, and projects and things that we're going to do on a modern homestead, people were doing 200 years ago. And if a person 200 years ago or 500 years ago can do it, you can do it today. With all the resources we have, all the help, all the online support, you can get it done. Um, also, I think we need to look for things that provide, when we're talking about bank for the way, does it provide multiple functions, including and maybe even especially beauty? So if I put in an herb garden, it may not give me 
as much bang for the buck from a standpoint of stuff I can eat than a full-on badass vegetable garden. But if I'm a person that doesn't eat a lot of vegetables, maybe I need a bigger herb garden and a smaller vegetable garden. Because what else will the herb garden do for me? Well, it can be medicinal. It brings in pollinators. It provides me beauty. In general, most herb gardens require less maintenance than vegetable gardens. Herbs are very hardy. Herbs are basically, in and of themselves, kind of like weeds. Right? So... It, and then, and then it, you know, it, it enhances the entire place to have an herb garden. If I ever go to sell my home, people look at an herb garden the way they look at a flower garden. They don't see it as like some complicated thing. A lot of people actually are intimidated by vegetable gardens. I'm not saying not to grow them. I'm just saying that if you have a big herb garden on the side of your house or out in the front, like you replace your, your conventional landscaping with an herb garden, a potential buyer or a homeowners association person with blue hair isn't going to really see that as an issue. So we just have to compare that. Again, it's not one's better than the other, just how does this fit into my life or my needs? I think we have to accept climate, time, and regional limits. I mean, that's, that's really one of the most important things that I think we can do when it comes to bang for the, for the buck is just ex like, If you really are a, you know, I want to grow citrus, and you live in Idaho, and you saw a video of some guy that built a greenhouse on the side of his house, and you want to do that, that's fine. But is that really what you should be doing first? Does it really make sense for you? How much will you save if you grow yourself an orange? How many oranges will you have to grow to make that thing worth having? Now, if it also heats your house... If you have the skills, you can you can you can find the material, uh, you know, and save money when you do it. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying, is it really the thing you want to bite off and try to do first? And it might be. It might be if I can basically build what amounts to a giant sunroom on the back of my house, and I know how to do that. That can do more for me than a garden ever could hope to. I could be running, you know. A little bit of aquaponics in there. I could be starting seeds in there. I could have enough. I could probably grow enough in something like that to not need a garden outside and have a lot more control over things and a lot longer of a season. But it still might not be the right choice for me just because I saw somebody do it or saw somebody draw a picture of an underground greenhouse and talk about how amazing these underground greenhouses are. And everybody's always got a drawing of it instead of a picture. That's an indicator that maybe you shouldn't be the one to go first. Now, you might got the feeling that I'm a little bit down on gardens. But I actually think that gardens and perennials, you know, maybe today you might feel that way. You know better if you listen a while. But gardens and perennial plantings, to me, are the core of a homestead because the entire point of a homestead is so that we can have the place we live provide for some of our needs instead of just being a money sink most people define their house as their biggest asset and it, it can be when structured right but for many americans their house is actually their greatest liability because you know if we, as we've seen from the recent government shutdown so many americans live one to two paychecks from poverty And if you own your home and you can't pay for it, the bank takes it away from you. So if we're not managing our home and our lifestyles in a way where we can sustain the mortgage payment, even if there's a hiccup in the road, we have a liability, not an asset. Conversely, when we buy affordable and we maintain our financial management, we, we mitigate that. Then when we start to make the home and the land around it provide back to us, 
Instead of just being something we have to constantly put inputs into, it actually has outputs that benefit us. Then we start to get somewhere. Then we really and the, the one of the greatest assets we have in America, and we and we just don't have an appreciation for it, is how much land we have. And I'm not even just talking about the vast, you know, the vast countryside and the, the, the you know the grain belt and all that. I'm talking about the average person in America has an unusually uh, large amount of access to land, even with a relatively modest income compared to the rest of the world. The rest of the world, especially the rest of the developed world. There's a lot of the somewhat undeveloped world where people just do whatever they want. And in some ways, those people have more liberty than we can even imagine, I think. But if you were to go to England uh, or France or Spain or Italy, you'll see some amazing gardens and some amazing homesteading. But if you are a uh, 20-something trying to buy your first house, um, you are far less likely to be able to afford you know, a tenth, a twentieth, a quarter of an acre, that type of thing. Uh, even these very small kind of garden home size lots and stuff still affords you so much land if you understand high density growing. So given that that's such a huge asset, we need to focus on it. And the number one way that it can produce for us is with vegetation. So I want to make sure that kind of the core of what you're doing is either a garden and or perennial plantings, small trees, small bushes, etc. Um, The, the the three biggest pieces of advice that I could give a person who wants to have a garden, wants to be able to grow anything at all that's productive and, and useful for food uh, or herbs for medicine is mulch, compost, fertilize. Mulch, compost, fertilize. And I'll say it again, mulch, compost, fertilize. And they are all actually the same thing to a degree, but we do them differently, and over time they build soil. So mulch, I... I have tried to be a voice of reason in a sea of insanity about wood chip mulch. If I hear one more person say that putting wood mulch down is going to rob nitrogen for the, from the soil, I just may jump off a building and kill myself. I don't know how this became such a horror in the minds of people, but it needs to stop. When you mulch, you can mulch with leaves, you can mulch with wood, you can mulch with straw, you mulch with whatever you want to, but don't be afraid of it. And it's funny that people say, well, you can mulch with straw, but you can mulch with wood. It's carbon. It does the same thing. It does the same thing. And, and, and honestly, straw mulch is, is far more likely to, uh, to cause problems with certain types of insects and things like that. I'm not saying not to use it. I'm not saying it's terrible. I'm saying it's just more likely to cause things like Uh, certain insect pests and all, then wood mulch tends to be. When you mulch with wood, you have to think about what somebody's saying when they say it robs nitrogen from the soil. First of all, we're going to compost and fertilize, so we don't really care. It can have all the nitrogen it wants. But if you have, let's say, a two-inch deep wood chip mulch, there's only a very thin layer of wood, millimeters maybe, two or three at the most, in contact with the soil. That is the only place that carbon and nitrogen can bond, from, from the soil anyway at that point. So mulch does so many things, but if you just go heavily mulch an area and, 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 and don't do anything else that I'm about to tell you, 
You just put down four inches, six inches, eight inches of wood mulch and leave it for a year. You come back and pull that, 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 that uh, wood chips back. If somebody tells you those wood chips are bad for the soil, you're going to look at that soil and realize you're talking to a fool. Okay? It's not a big deal. Now, if we go and we put down other organic matter like rotting leaves and stuff like that, and we put down fertilizer and compost, and we do that same thing, we're going to blow things up. And I want to talk about fertilizer here and what I mean when I say fertilizer. There's a lot of different types of things that we can look at as a fertilizer that don't necessarily say fertilizer. One of the most amazing things you can do for yourself when you're establishing a new garden, especially if you've got time, like say you're going to do this now, you're going to be planting this spring, you're just going to start building your beds, go down to your feed store. And don't even worry, this is not going to be a long-term persistent thing. So I don't care if it was GMO. I don't give a damn. It's not going to matter. Um, ask them if they have any chicken feed, poultry feed, etc., that, like, got a rip in the bag, it's got some weevils in it that they just want to get rid of. And they may have that, you know, and, and, and then they'll sell it dirt cheap. And if they don't, just what is your cheapest feed that you have? And, and do a scattering of, of like poultry feed or rotted grain or anything like that. Get some horticultural molasses, uh, dry molasses, and put that down with it. And now we're feeding soil organisms and we're feeding worms. Now, on top of that, lay down compost. Whether you buy it or make it, whatever, you lay down compost. Now, on top of that, we're going to scatter a good quality organic fertilizer, like Dr. Earth Liquid uh, or Dr. Earth uh, Gold, or something like that, and any other organic fertilizers that we want to use. And then we're going to scatter down, if we can beg, borrow, steal them, some just kind of rotting old leaves, especially if you got oak leaf with some mold on it. If we want to go even a little further, if you can find a place nearby where there is you know, like woods that you can walk in and stuff. Go find pieces of wood, bark, etc., that are really starting to decay from fungus and just start bringing it home with you and just build a big pile, like a secondary compost pile. And just keep throwing that stuff in there, keep it in a shaded area, throw some leaves on top of it and just keep adding to it any any just, you know, fungally rotted wood you can. Go to that pile stomp on it, break it up, and just sprinkle some of that in there and then throw your mulch down on top of that. You might have to wait, if you don't want to do any work, turning soil, whatever, you know, a season to half a season or something like that to to get where you want to be with your soil. But if you do that and you can't grow food, you're doing something wrong. And when I've described this before, I've heard people almost say, well, that's not fair. Well, I'm not trying to be fair with nature. I'm trying to be successful. And then when you're when you're growing through the season, don't be afraid to use organic fertilizers. Just don't. Uh, Dr. Earth is one of my favorites. I'll tell you, this is kind of the leak of what's going on with MSB. I found a company that provides fertilizer that's basically catfish crap. So they have a hatchery, so they, they figured why not turn a waste product into an asset. So they designed their, their farm tanks so that when the catfish crap, it's easy to harvest their waste, and they make a biological fertilizer from that. It's actually really low in NPK. You'd think it'd be high, but it's not. It's, it's micronutrients and it's biology 
that, that makes it effective. Again, I'm still trialing it to make sure, and it's hard to do right now, but I'm not bringing it on board until I'm 100% sold on it. But you take those two things together and you use that during the growing season. When you plant your plants, take a pinch of, you know, whether it's Dr. Earth or just a little bit of blood and bone or something, and just throw a pinch in the, in the hole when you plant that plant. Don't be afraid to do that. Don't try to do everything with compost, especially initially until you really get things established. And you'll have great results. Um, start small. So many people, I'm going to put in a quarter acre garden. Have you ever gardened before? No, then don't do that. Don't do that. You know, two four-by-eight beds is a great place to start. You can always add another one. There's a lot of stuff you can grow that, you know, it doesn't need a long growing season. So if you get your two up and running early in the season and you're kind of happy with them, you start thinking about expanding, go ahead and build a third one then when you're already kind of happy with where you're at. So start small. Definitely grow what you eat. Um, if you don't eat something, don't grow it. I know that sounds crazy, but people get seed catalogs and sell these weird things, and I want that because it looks neat, and you know, that sounds interesting. If you're going to try to grow something and you've never eaten it before, go see if you can buy it somewhere. Go see if you can buy it somewhere and try it, or at least find out what it tastes like, like it's similar to, and then focus on that. I mean, it's, it's much easier to grow the things that you know your family will eat And grow what will do well where you are. I've talked about this before, but it is a pain in the ass to grow tomatoes around here. It really is. Now I do it, but I don't. I don't bet my my bottom dollar on it. I grow tomatillos because they do fantastic here because they don't get early and late blight and every other tomato fungus in the world, in the world, which is what seems to happen uh, down here more often than not. So definitely. You know, start small and grow uh, what you will eat and what does well where you are. Make sure that you're doing some planting of productive trees, bushes, and vines and things like that. Um, I don't want to get go on full-on permaculture. You know, and I want to make sure you understand when I'm taking this stuff to basics today, I'm not saying don't do a backyard food forest. I'm saying for the average person that's getting started out of the gate, building that core garden and then expanding from there as much as they e end up wanting to, or need to, or have a desire to, will we'll go better. But, you know, if you're going to put in a tree, put in a tree that grows something you can eat. Or, you know, if you're where you can grow like a bay tree, put in a bay tree versus a, a Bradford pear that's just an ornamental pear, because at least you can use a leaf or something. So make sure you're, on some level, including and incorporating um, perennials into the landscape. And I, I think I did some research one time, I came up with a project that we never really did called the 10% Project, which was designed to get Americans to simply replace 10% of our ornamental trees, bushes, and vines with something productive. And based on very conservative and average numbers, it was like something like 5 million metric tons of food that we could be producing without tilling the ground, without, change, without doing anything really any different, just... Oh, well, uh, I, I have five trees on my property, so I'm going to plant one more, and it's going to be, instead of a dogwood, an edible dogwood called a Cornelian cherry. Or I'm going to put an apple tree in, or I'm going to put a fig tree in, or, you know, I'm going to put some vines back there. Some of these grapes instead of just, you know, some kind of ivy that doesn't do anything. So make sure we're incorporating some type of perennials into this, and I'm not going to say a, a ton on that today because we can get way deep into that topic. Um, But if I remember, I started this whole thing out and I said the three pieces of advice for the gardener getting started are mulch, compost, fertilize. 
If you said, well, Jack, I like things in fours instead of threes, what would you add to it? My final one for this bullet point list here is irrigate. A lot of people trying to do everything without irrigation, etc., put in irrigation. If it's plumbed into city water, it's better than not, you know, not having it at all. If you can do rain catchment, great. If you're on a well, great, whatever. But put in the infrastructure for irrigation when you put your garden in. It doesn't take much effort to trench a little bit of pipe in, set up some timers, and try to automate the irrigation if you can. This way, when you go on vacation and your, your, your neighbor said they'd take care of your garden for you, you don't come home and it's dead because they didn't know what that meant. You know, they didn't understand that, no, it's Texas, and if you water my garden for me at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for five minutes, you just destroyed it. They didn't get that. They didn't know because they don't, they don't do it, what have you. Automated irrigation is really the way to go, or at least irrigation that you can basically flip a switch. Uh, you could do worse if you, if you can't do automation for whatever reason. You just don't think it's worth it. You're only putting two beds in. If you can put in, you know, let's say uh, shrub sprinklers, which is basically you can just stub up a piece of PVC pipe and put these little sprinklers on them. You can get at Home Depot these little heads. They go on the adapter that's a slip and thread adapter, so it'll go over the half inch pipe and then there'll be a thread. So you PVC glue it onto the pipe and then it screws onto there. And you can get them in full patterns where they spray in 360 degrees. You can get them in half patterns, corner patterns, whatever. And you just put those in your garden beds. And then you use some leader hoses and get some of those mechanical timers where you just turn the timer to like 15 minutes and the water runs. And at the end of 15 minutes, it shuts off. At least then you can tell your neighbor, all you got to do, come over here at like 6 o'clock at night, take this dial and turn it to 15 and walk away. Do that every other day or whatever it is for you. So, and it'll be easier for you too because... You know, you can call your wife or, or your, your husband if you're at work and you're the one who usually takes care of Can you go outside and just turn the thing to 15? I'm not going to get home late today. So put some sort of automation, timer, whatever, even if it's mechanical and requires you, uh, into the irrigation of your garden and your life will be better. I don't care if you live where it rains enough that you don't normally need to irrigate. I would say that the, where my grandfather and grandmother lived in Pennsylvania, irrigation was seldom needed. It didn't mean that a few times a year I didn't drag a damn hose down there because they told me to and water the shit out of everything. You know, they considered a drought when it went two weeks without raining. But if it went two weeks without raining at the beginning of August when it was almost 100 degrees there, it could be a real problem. A real problem. Especially since my grandfather wasn't real familiar with the concept of mulch. You know, mulch, fertilize... Right? Mulch, fertilize, compost, irrigate. If you do those things and you set your garden up the way I described at the beginning of this segment, you will have a productive garden. And, again, the big thing is when we're doing new stuff, everybody wants to grow some you know, weird purple carrot or something like that. You know, there's just a point where you kind of do stuff to show off and what have you, and that's fine, and you just want it because it's exotic or weird, and you get to where you get your soil so healthy, you can do almost anything within reason. But as you're establishing things, if your first year you try to grow 10 different things, a certain variety of tomato, a certain variety of cucumber, a certain variety of pepper, a certain maybe two peppers, right, two or three different lettuces, and uh, at the end of that season you say, okay, Out of those ten things, four did really good. They either got a big harvest in the end or a continuous harvest. They didn't get beat up by pests, etc. 
Those four go on the permanent list. The other, there was four more that did, eh, okay. I'm going to pick the two that I like the best, that did the best, and I'm going to try again. I'm going to figure something out differently. My soil's better this year, etc. I'm going to put the plants out earlier or later, whatever it is. I'm going to put the seeds in at this time. I'm going to... You know, do a little bit better with paying attention to this. I found out that this that needs this really is a heavy iron feeder. I'm going to use some iron, whatever it is. You, you do those two. I'm going to take two of the okay and put it back and try those again. And then you pick four new things. Maybe you had really bad results with tomatoes, but instead of not growing tomatoes and going to tomatillos like I do, you just pick a different variety or maybe two varieties, and you bring four new things in. So we have four that are permanent, two that we're trying again, and four that are new. And at the end of the season, one of those two we retried works, and one of the new four works. Now we got six things that our garden does well. And most of the people I know that really kick ass with production in their garden, they grow somewhere between eight and a dozen things. They do the same thing every year, and if it's something that leads itself to it, they save their seeds. And people want to grow 97 different varieties. And I'm all for all the polyculture and everything. We'll get there. The core annual garden, 8 to 12 things. Most people don't routinely eat more than 8 to 10 to 12 things anyway when it comes to produce. Go in a produce section, as varied as it looks. There's peppers, there's carrots, there's cucumbers, there's potatoes, right? So, and you know, on potatoes real quick, somebody asked me on, on the Instagram post, how do you store potatoes where you don't have a root cellar in the south? Grow sweet potatoes and store them in the ground and go out and pull out one whenever you need to because the tops will die back, throw a bunch of mulch on it. You can do it with carrots too, by the way, and just leave them in the ground and go out there and pull them out. And you'll probably miss a couple by the time you get to spring, and you'll probably start to see some sweet potato coming back up. Use those to make your new slips, and you don't have to go through all the crab to make slips again. That's what I, my experience has been here. Um, let's move on to livestock. I think livestock is a place that a lot of people get really excited about. I get emails all the time from people who are like, Jack, I'm going to, I find my dream property. I'm going to, I'm going to have a horse and I'm going to have some cows and I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a goat and I'm going to have, a, you know, let's pull back from that. Remember, this is decomplicating things. Is that a word? Decomplicate? It is now. I made it up. It's a word. I said so. I'm allowed to. I'm offended if you don't let me make words up. Anyway, um, we're going to decomplicate things. Livestock, my number one rule with livestock is circles around the word one. Start with one thing. As a new keeper of livestock, stock, accept the fact you're going to kill unintentionally some of your animals. It's going to happen. You're going to go in your brooder and you're going to find a little baby chick wedged itself between the food dish and the wall because you didn't set it up right and suffocated itself. If you try turkeys, you, we're not going to talk about turkeys. If you try turkeys today, I guarantee you, you put 12 turkeys in a brooder, one of them sun guns is going to kill itself. It's almost like, like there's just that one. You almost, you get them from the hatchery or whatever and you put them in the, and you look and go, oh, you're the one. You're not going to make it a week. You're going to kill yourself. And eventually you learn how to prevent him from killing himself. But, I mean, you're going to kill animals and not just the ones you want to kill because you want to eat them. And if you're trying to do two things at once and you're learning two different species at once, two different husbandry tribes at once, and one starts going wrong and you're trying to fix it, you're going to ignore the other one and problems are going to crop up that you may have been able to solve. And even when you're experienced, you try something new, you're probably going to kill something before you figure it out. Here's an example. 
We were keeping quail in stack racks, just the way everybody else does it. I wanted to do it better. We came up with some ideas for tractoring them, but, but I built an aviary. We'll put the quail in the aviary. They have a 50-foot-long by 10-foot-wide aviary. It's quail paradise. So we put them in there, and I put some sprinklers in the aviary and threw some grass seed down and stuff like that and had all kinds of stuff to eat. Not sustainable. They ate it all. Go out there one day and like walk through there, and you have to be careful you don't step on them. Well, I'm walking through there, and quail are like flipping out, and they're like flying into the wall and trying to get away from me and freaked out. I find a quail that jammed itself between the hardware cloth and the frame of the aviary and basically hung itself. It's dead. Another quail laying there twitching, dying. Ended up killing it, not eating, because I don't know what's wrong with it. Started to have a disease or something. Realize eventually there is some stuff growing in the aviary, and I look at one of them and I go, that's horse nettle. Horse nettle is a neurotoxin. They never ate it when there was other stuff in there. When it went down to nothing else, they started eating it. They were basically tripping out and committing suicide. Neurotoxin. It's like they, they were quails dropping acid. Pull all the horse nettle out. Keep an eye on it for a couple weeks. No more quail dying. Never had it happen again. If I would have known in advance, would have never happened. Didn't know. Been involved with keeping livestock of various sizes since I was 12 years old. Didn't know. Once I did know, Google, quail, horse nettle, nothing. Nothing. No. So the only way to learn that was to know horse nettle was a neurotoxin, which I did. Know it was in there, which I didn't notice it until they ate everything else and started freaking out and killing themselves. So if an experienced person can lose animals like that, imagine a person that's never kept an animal before other than a dog or a cat, and all of a sudden they're trying to keep chickens, quails, rabbits, ducks, fish, goats, all at the same time. I mean, cows, we're not going to talk about cows. This is a small scale. But cows cows look for ways, I'm convinced. Like turkeys, like there's that one. I'm, I'm pretty convinced every cow's like, if I get a chance today, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, gee, look, acorns. I can give myself tannin poisoning. I'm going to eat 500 million of those things. Gee, I think, oh, look, horse apples, you know, the Osage orange. I could eat a couple of those, they'd be good. I'm going to eat enough of them to impact my stomach and kill myself. I mean, really. So animals try to kill themselves because we put them in domesticated situations, and animals are naturally wild creatures that have a lot more space to roam, and they're not confined, so you're going to kill animals. So let's start with one. Let's go through my five favorites for homesteading and why. Chickens. Chickens I love because they make eggs, and I don't know, nobody don't eat an egg except people who are allergic to them or the rare person doesn't like them. So the main reason I see to keep chickens in a homestead situation for food is for egg production. If you ain't going to use them for eggs, then you need to be raising meat-specific chickens, taking you know somewhere between 8 and 16 weeks to produce your chickens and processing them and only doing it for a little bit of the year. That's not what we're talking about today. So I'm talking about your little laying flock of chickens. Um, what I love about the chicken is there's probably a chicken for you. You need a quiet chicken, there's a quiet chicken. You need a chicken that can handle heat, white leghorns. White leghorns can handle heat. Boring chicken, a little white bird, lays a white egg, but high feed conversion ratio can handle really hot temperatures. In the hottest parts of Australia where people homestead, they use a white leghorn. You want a cold chicken, you can find a cold weather chicken. So it, it, you can do it almost anywhere. If you live somewhere you can't do chickens, I don't know why you live there. Seriously. Um, next up, uh, chickens are multi-purpose. 
So we can use a chicken to produce eggs. When a chicken reaches the end of its life, even if it's not a high-quality meat bird, it's still a meat yield. And we can use chickens to process material into compost and dispose of waste material. So another reason I love chickens. Chickens are cool. If you have a big, giant flock of chickens, it's one thing. If you have four to six chickens at a small scale, which is it's plenty for the small homestead for one family, your chickens are almost like pets. My favorite chickens I've ever owned are the ones I have now. I have three of them because I have a duck flock. Uh, but I have three little brown bantam Cochrane hens. They lay a little egg. It's a small egg, but it's, it's not like a quail egg where you need a special cutter to open it or whatever. They taste really good. Actually, I love bantam eggs for doing over easy because they, they, it's real easy to cook them exactly the way you want them and get them there without overdoing the yolk or underdoing the white. Uh, they taste great. They fit on a little half piece of toast because I don't let myself have toast often. And when I do, I like, I like one piece so that I can put one egg on each half. Uh, great little eggs, friendly little birds, man. Good with the kids. They're like pets. You pick them up, put them on your shoulder, etc. Just great birds. But chickens, love them because they can break down compost. We'll talk more about that later. Um, the downside of chickens is there's places where they're illegal or just not allowed. Not really illegal, but they're not allowed. HOAs and stuff like that. Uh, they can be noisy and they can be messy. And they do need some kind of outdoor space. So, But this is another thing I like about chickens. If you have land and no one's going to bitch, you can probably have chickens. Even a small piece of land. You can run chickens in tractors. You can run them free range. You can run them past, you know, pastured with a paddock shift model. With poultry netting. You can run them in a coop and run. I don't give a damn what Paul Wheaton says. It's not chicken freaking Nazi camp to put a chicken in a coop and a run. Especially when you're running like four birds. The old school method where they put a coop one side and a run on each side, and one season the chickens are on this side, the other season is garden on the other side. And every year you flip them back and forth, that works. There's just so much you can do with them. I prefer ducks as an animal, but I admit chickens are fantastic. You do have to control them, though. If you free-range them, they will find the places you least want them to be, tear shit up, and with the exception of onions... If you eat it, they'll eat it, which means almost everything in your garden they're going to eat. So you have to control them. Quail. What I love about quail, quail start laying eggs in seven weeks. You can hatch them with an incubator, which is easy to do. You only have to brood them for about three weeks. You can raise them in cages, stacked in a garage, and one stack of them in a garage. You know, a place that takes up about four feet by four feet can raise you enough that you and your family could eat quail two times a week for your entire year nonstop and never run out of birds and have more eggs than you know what to do with. Uber productive, tastes really good. They do not have the personality of a chicken, so processing them for some piece, emo people is emotionally easier, and they are fast and easy to process. When it comes to a coal bird, I'm talking about a quail that's you know two years old, three years old. You're done with it laying. It's it's time to bring new layers in, and you have to cull it. It's like a little stewing quail, you know. Um, I get my shears out, and I use kitchen shears to do the processing. When I process meat quail, birds that are six to eight weeks old, I do it like a dove in the field. I don't use any tools whatsoever. Pop the head off, instant death. Pull some feathers off, expose the breast, pop the breast open, yank the breast out, bend the legs, pull, pop, snap, one leg quarter, pull, pop, snap, another leg quarter. I'm not kidding. It really is that fast. 
And in that fast, I have in my hand a quail breast and two leg quarters and waist on the other side. I don't really know another animal you can process that fast that you can also raise to meat size in a month and a half. Um, where they, the other place are not as good as chickens though. They have a fantastic egg product, but it is a little fiddly egg. You need a little egg opener for it. And it ain't the same as having a great big chicken egg or duck egg, but it's a good egg product. Dogs love them. They're great boiled, um, but they're a little fiddly and they're not a real good composting animal. Chickens, I compost with all the time. My quails, let's just say once the chickens left the aviary, quails ain't very useful. They, they are not, they are good for improving land if you tractor them. They will do a great job of improving land. Their, their manure is great compost fodder and fertilizer. It is hot. It doesn't need to be composted, but they, they can't. I'll put it this way. When you get chickens, you'll find yourself when you go to a restaurant, everything on your table, whether you want to eat it or not, will go in a to-go box and go home to your chickens and they will make compost out of it. Quail? No, not happening. Next up, rabbits. I almost didn't put rabbits in today because they're kind of specialized. But they have too much going for them. And while they're a little more complicated than chickens or quails or ducks, if you do them only, if you, if you do one first and you start with rabbits, you can do just fine, and they are a meat yield that is incredible. A duck and two, uh, a duck, a buck and two doe rabbits will put way more meat on your table in a single season than going out and shooting three white-tailed deer. I know that seems stupid, but it, it won't do it your first season. But when you get everything optimized and you know what you're doing, the meat yield from rabbits is just exceptional. Remember I said you'd kill something, though? If you're going to do it, you're probably going to do it with rabbits. It, it takes a little more effort, a little more work, and it, it can be a little harder psychologically to slaughter rabbits. Though I think, like anything else, once you know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and you realize the meat you're producing for your family is so much higher quality, um, that you, 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 you accept the responsibility if you're going to be a carnivore to take care of your own needs. But, you know, rabbit, it, it's something that takes some, it might be harder to get your family on board with, and they require more effort. You know, there's, there, there's more to worry about when it's really hot. There's more to worry about when it's really cold. And when you want to breed them, like you can have a stack of quail, just have a male in your cage, and all your eggs are fertile. Whenever you want to hatch some eggs, you just take some eggs and throw them in an incubator. Rabbits, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring one rabbit to the other, and you gotta let them breed, and you gotta separate them again. You gotta keep an eye on the female. It's not hard, it just takes, there's a learning curve to it that's a little bit longer. And then they're a little more work to process. You're not processing rabbits as fast as I process quail. The only person I might be able to is Nick Ferguson. Nick Ferguson is a machine when it comes to processing a rabbit. Uh, but most people, it takes them quite a while to process rabbits. Ducks. I love ducks because their egg product is superior to chickens. I love ducks because as much as I love my little bantam uh, chickens, ducks are just more personable. They're just a friendlier bird to be around. They are not great composters, and they do make a mess. I don't think they're good for most suburban homesteaders. But if you have like mid-sized acreage like I do, they're a lot softer on the land with some understandings. One, like the chicken, if it's your garden and you'll eat it, they will too. They will eat everything. Number two, if there's a place where a hose is left on, where water accumulated because it came off the roof during a rainstorm, where there's a puddle, they will make a mud puddle, and they will make a mud puddle into a bare ground place with a bunch of beak holes in it. 
If your property can handle that, fine. If you're okay with it, fine. But they will do that. Um, and But you can move them into kind of a coop and run situation. The other, if there's a negative, is they've got to have water that they can get into or they're just not happy. So you've got a daily chore of cleaning out some sort of a swim tank, draining it, having somewhere for that waste to go. So I think ducks are fine for mid-size acreage, couple acres. I don't think they make a lot of sense for the backyard, though a lot of people do it and figure it out. It's probably not the place to start, though. Fish, I think, are the most underrated small livestock. Um, you can look at some of my videos on timber frame ponds and things like that and see what I do with them. You can get an old, you know, you can get an old above-ground pool for next to nothing, sometimes for free, to take it away on Craigslist, build a pond, throw some fish in there, feed them. Let's say you go a week and you can't feed your fish or something's wrong in your life. They're not going to die. They're going to produce less waste. They're going to need less life support, and they're not going to die. They're going to get along. They're going to they're gonna figure it out. There'll be some algae in there that they can eat. There'll be some insects that they can eat. They'll, if you do a good ecosystem, there'll be some minnows. They'll, they'll pick some of those off. There'll be some you know like things like dragonfly nymphs and stuff. They'll get by for a week. During the winter, there's times I go two weeks without feeding fish out in my tanks. If it's cold and they're not real active and I throw some food in there and they don't eat, I stop feeding them. There's a certain temperature water goes below, certain species of fish, you don't feed them anymore. So they're, they're less work in the winter. So that's nice. There was a day I decided I wanted to make fish tacos out of fish from one of my tanks. It took me from the time I decided it till I went out there with a fishing rod, pulled five out, kept three, two of the other two back because they're too small, filleted them, covered them with seasoning, threw them on the grill, scraped the meat out of the, she uh, out of the skin, mixed it up, and put it on a plate with tacos for me and my wife. It took me less than 45 minutes from the idea to fresh food on a plate. Doing almost no work. That's hard to beat. Um, the Asian cultures figured out long ago that the most productive systems in the world are aquatic. And that's why if you look at any of like the small-scale production over in Asia, inevitably if there's a backyard, there's fish in it somewhere. From a koi pond that's pretty to look at to something that's producing, you know, water chestnuts and stuff like that. And I don't want to get too deep into it. I just did not want to leave fish out. I think it's the most underrated small livestock in America. I've done whole shows on it, so I'll just leave it there. I want to get into composting now. Unless you have large amounts of material available where you can build two cubic yard, you know, at least a one cubic yard pile at a time, put it all together. And you really, I think you should be going bigger than that if you're going to waste your time turning. Just forget turning. Forget making compost in 21 days. Forget all the back-breaking work and labor that goes with it. Just put it aside and just accept that there's going to be a waste stream on your property. And is a good steward of your property. And is someone that wants fertility to return to your property to grow food and to grow other things. That it's your responsibility to harness that waste stream. The easiest method I know that looks good and is aesthetically pleasing for reluctant spouses and neighborhood associations is the garbage can method. And I have a video for MSB members. You can look up how, how to do it. But basically, you use a hole saw and, like, rubber-made garbage cans. And in the center of that garbage can, you put a piece of the 4-inch uh, French drain pipe that has the big holes in it in the center. And then there's, some way, there's a way that you do it with a pattern, but you almost can't mess it up. And you pile all your waste around that pipe until that garbage can is full. And then 
you build another one. Or you can build a couple, three, right from the get-go. It's up to you, but you can scale into it. It takes a long time to fill that thing up. And when that one is full, you start filling the second one. Two's probably enough, because by the time the second one is full, the first one is done, it's ready to use. It'll be about three-quarters to half full, depending on what the compost was made of by the time it's done. And then you can dump it out somewhere to use it, use it all at once, or just put it in a pile for storage somewhere, and start filling the second one up, the first one up again, and the second one will finish. If you want to have some storage and keep everything easy and maybe you produce more waste, you use three cans. If you really need to, you use four. But I've never seen anybody need more than three. And you can look that video up and see how to do it, but it's so simple when you do this. And the pipe down the center of the can keeps airflow so you get a good composting action. And all the methods I'm going to give you today address what I call the, 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 the uh, cake baker's paradigm. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, the, uh, the, the cake baker's paradox. Um, if you were trying to make a cake and you needed your oven to be on 350 degrees and your oven was on 150 degrees and you needed to fill your cake pan 100% and you only had enough batter to feed, fill your cake pan like 3%, and you put the cake batter in the pan at 150 degrees stuck in your oven, nothing really would happen. You'd have like warm, nasty cake batter that would eventually dry out. But five minutes later, you open the oven and put in like another 3% of your cake batter and turn the temperature up to 165 degrees. And every five minutes, you turn the temperature up and add a little bit more cake batter. Eventually, you'd get to a high enough temperature with enough cake batter, you'd start to actually bake something resembling a cake. It would suck, but it would start to resemble a cake. But then, even when you got to full temperature, if every five minutes you opened it up and added more cake batter, you'd end up with this gooey mess. It would never actually be a cake. And this is how most people trying to make compost pile try to make compost. Because you're always adding new stuff, and therefore you can't ever get up. Well, if you just add it and add it and add it and add it until it's a pile... And then start a new pile, eventually it will take care of itself. And that's probably the best way for most homesteaders to do things. The garbage can method is a way to make it look pretty. The way to do it with no cash outlay, if you have the space and no one's going to get mad about it, is the slow no-turn pile. You do the same thing, basically. Just throw it all in a pile and keep piling it up. And when it gets to a certain height, start making a new pile. Never turn it, never touch it. And the only thing is, like, add some carbon to it. Because you're probably, most of your waste is going to be nitrogen and it's going to be wet. Banana peels, grass clippings, etc. Find some source of leaves. You probably have trees you rake anyway. Leaves in a pile and just throw leaves. Whenever you add wet, add some carbon. Either way, doing that. If you decide, if you mow the lawn, you have a bunch, you know, you can always rake up some of your lawn clippings, sprinkle it all over the pile, throw some sort of a, a brown carbon on top of it. Just keep doing that. That's all you got to do. Very little work, very little effort. Once the pile's you know big enough that it's significant, whatever that is to you, start making a new pile. By the time you're done building the second pile, the first one's probably shrunk some, and you got good compost. If not, build the third pile. By the time you're done with it, I promise you, by the time you got the third pile built, the first one. No turning, no pitchforks, no work, no nothing. Is it the highest quality compost in the world? No. Who cares? It's good. And it's zero effort. And if you want to get more finicky with your compost, you can do that in time. Next, um, worms. Worm bins are fantastic for people that produce a lot of vegetative waste. They have a lot of trimmings from salads and stuff like that. 
They want to throw into a bin. Um, if you live in the south, you're probably going to have to do your, do your warm bin inside, at minimum in a garage or an outbuilding. Or if you're doing it outside, you're probably going to have to have, like, it's going to have to be standing in a water tank because fire ants will go into it and kill all your worms and colonize your, your worm bed. Trust me, I know. But otherwise, worm beds are great. And the compost, the worm castings, is like the, pre, to my opinion, the premium fertilizer. Next up today, chicken wire towers is another way to go. Uh, kind of a, a halfway point between the, 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 the no-turn pile and the garbage can method. Just basically take chicken wire and make a round tower with an open bottom and an open top. Set it somewhere where it's good to have your compost where it's not in the way and start throwing shit in it. Again, grass clippings, kitchen waste, whatever. Until it's full, make another one and fill it up. Make as many as you need, and by the time you fill two, your first one is probably good to start taking compost from. And, and I'll tell you another thing we need to realize, too. Like When we're doing gardening the way I described with like a lasagna method and stuff, our compost doesn't have to be 100% done. If that first one, when you start looking at it, there's some bigger pieces, and I'll just use it. Use it like mulch. So pull the big mulch back, use it, and then throw the mulch back on top of it or put a new layer of mulch on top of it. And let nature do what nature does. This is the way everybody did everything until people got complicated with it. Um, using chickens, if you have a small chicken flock, like I said, you'll never not fill your to-go box when you leave a restaurant again. You'll take everything because they'll eat it. What I use, you know, you've seen, like, maybe seen Jeff Lawton's, you know, chicken tractor on steroids making compost. Uh, there's a guy up in, it's either Vermont or Maine or Nat, uh, New Hampshire that has this huge compost facility with hundreds of chickens, and he makes this incredible compost. Small scale, keep it easy, very little work. I take 21-gallon uh, concrete mixing trays from Home Depot. They sell for 14 bucks. I put one out by where my chickens live. All our compost from the kitchen waste and everything, it goes in a little can on our, on our countertop in the kitchen. So all the compost goes in there. It gets full. I go out in the morning, let the birds out. I take it with me. I dump it in that 21-gallon tray. If I do some started plants or something, I have some old potting soil or whatever and I want to reuse, I throw it in there. Every once in a while, it looks like, hey, I could use some carbon. I go in the chicken house when I let the birds out in the morning, grab a handful of straw from the deep litter, I throw it in there. I keep doing that till it's full. At that point, there's a lot of stuff in there the chickens will still work. So I bring a second one out. This is what I do now, in spite of the other ones I gave you. I've done all the other ones before. This is what I do now. And I start filling the second bin. Until the chickens start ignoring the first one. There's a point where it's broken down enough, they'll start ignoring it. I then cover it with straw. Again, from the chicken house. And I take it somewhere they can't. Because once you put the straw on it, they want to dig in that. Even though it came out of their own chicken house, and they could have dug it in yesterday, it's new, we got to play with it. So you put it somewhere where they can't get it in a shaded area and wet it down and just leave it alone for about six months. You'll come back to it. You can cover it. It makes a lot of sense to put a tarp over it when you do this. When you come back to it, your 21 gallons will have shrunk down to about 16 gallons in a nice manageable tray that you can physically pick up. And if you got to go too far with it, you can throw it in a wheelbarrow or you know your your little your lawn tractor cart or whatever, and take it wherever you want to, and you have perfect compost with no work at all. That's the way I do it now. Um, and then I, I just wanted to mention this because if I don't 
People are going to be like, I can't believe you didn't mention it, even though I talked about them yesterday. Black Soldier fly bins. Um, there's a lot of ways to integrate those. We might do a really in-depth segment on them in the future. But if, if you have a lot of poultry waste, like the guy we talked about yesterday with the quail, it's, and it's hot and it needs to be composted, you can grow the hell out of black soldier flies. It's almost no work. Um, they produce a really great food product for your fish and your poultry. You can integrate them into systems where when they, they what happens, they, they're in their bin, they break stuff down, they're like a big maggot. They get to a certain point in their development where they're ready to pupate and become a fly. They climb up out of that and they drop off somewhere. Well, that can be right to where your chickens live. It can be into a fish tank. It can be into a can and frozen for later for feeding your animals or what have you. But where they excel is breaking down things that don't break down well in other composting methods and become a stinky mess. Like if you kept rabbits and you have like guts and stuff or you kept quail and you have like guts and stuff, And it, well, if you, again, you would want to time your slaughter to when the peak of the season for black soldier flies are for you, but you could throw a couple pounds of that waste into a, a, a fly uh, bin, and in two days it is gone. It's turned into compost and a food product for your poultry or your fish. So I just wanted to throw those in there. Let's talk about seed starting. I had a lot of questions about this uh, today when I gave the choice between seed starting and uh, homesteading. And it is part of homesteading, so I thought I would give you a short primer on it. Number one, what I want to say is do not be ashamed to buy plants, especially your first year gardening. You have to learn as a gardener how much to irrigate, how to fertilize, how to deal with pests, how to identify diseases, um, to realize this plant is just not going to make it. It needs to come out and be replaced with something else. Uh, something's going to get away. Your dog's going to go in there and mess stuff up. You got to make sure your irrigation. You got so many things to learn. There's so many skills to just running a couple garden beds. Starting seeds is another skill, completely independent of running the garden itself. So, your first year, especially, buy some plants. And it's, you can still start plants, but don't be ashamed to buy some plants. And, and don't worry about the fact that it costs more. Just get enough of an establishment to where you can. Learn that gardening skill that first year. And then, you know, the next season we can do a little bit more with plant starting. Um, next, when you are buying plants, check small nurseries, family-run nurseries, things like that. It used to be you could go to all the box stores. You go to Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera, and you could buy either six packs or nine packs of, you know, broccoli, tomatoes, peppers, whatever. And the plants were a little bit smaller, but, you know, you could buy a six-pack for like three bucks. It's 50 cents a plant. I almost can't be bothered to start my own seeds unless I'm using my own, like seeds I saved, heirloom, something like that. I almost can't be bothered at that price because I don't need to grow 100 tomato plants. I need to grow like six. I don't need to grow, you know, I just don't. I, how much do you need to grow? How much can you deal with? So at that price, I almost can't, can't be bothered. Now you go there and they have, the, you know, the Bonnies or whatever, and they're in like a four-inch pot. And they're like $2.98 a piece. So 10 plants is 30 bucks. So regardless of, of the, all the expense and effort in the garden itself, you got to grow 30 bucks worth of produce out of those plants before you broke even to just buying this stuff. So it, it's a little bothersome to have to pay those kind of fees. So um, look for other alternatives. We have a feed store here. And uh, I buy plants there for like a dollar a plant. And they have everything. 
Now, you got to pay attention. you got to ask, too. These places, if they're not self-producing, when do you get your plants in? Show up the day they get their plants in, before they're all picked through, and before they're neglected by the staff that forgot to water them for three days, before the wind beats the shit out of them, etc., when they've just come from the nursery. So don't be afraid to buy, but look for deals. Start plants that need to be started because of your climate, your temperature, and your growing season. Don't start plants early that don't need it. Don't start zucchini. Plant your zucchini seed in the ground when it's late enough in the season to do so. You know, Don't start zucchini. Don't start green beans. Don't start corn. The fact that they put out those freaking $3 pots with like three corn plants growing way too close together for them to be growing and people buy them, I don't understand. Don't start corn. Most of the time, don't start squash, etc. You know, and you can, I, I can see doing squash. I've done it here. Here's why. I have a, what we would call a pot tent to start my vegetables in. And I can start zucchini early enough in a big enough pot. I can get it so big that by the time it's safe to put it out there, I can put it out, deal with a little bit of transplant shock, but it'll produce a bunch of zucchini before the squash vine borers show up. So I can beat the timing there. So if you know why you're doing it, but in the beginning, things that don't need to be started early, don't start them early. You have to deal with them. You have to take care of them. And then you want to have a lot of place to start your seeds. You want to have a lot of space, a lot of lights, a lot of rack space. And you got a lot of work to do. Okay? Well, if you were going to do a garden and you know your, your plants that typically really need to get a lot of production out of them from a single season to be started earlier, peppers and tomatoes. And all you start is your peppers and tomatoes. And all your other, maybe your broccoli, if you do broccoli, cauliflower, even cabbage, these, those make some sense. And that's all you start. And pretty much everything else you grow that first year, you wait till it's late enough in the season for that plant, you put it in the ground, you grow it from seed where you plant it. Now you don't need as much space, you don't need as lights, you don't need as much expense. You use bigger pots, make stockier plants. Number one problem I see people have with starting their own seeds. Long, leggy seedlings. They get really excited. Your plant starts growing really, really fast. goes really, really tall. Falls over. Looks like a limp dick. Right? What the hell's wrong? It's not getting enough light. 99 times out of 100, it's not getting enough light. If you're using the Kingbow 45-watt LEDs, when those plants are first sowed to seed, that light needs to be a few inches above the soil line. Just right down on there. You need to set up a way where either you've lifted the plants up and they can be lowered down as they get taller, or you've lowered the light down and it can be risen up over time. And as the plant comes up, keep the light a couple inches above the plant. And you won't get long, leggy seedlings. Use good potting soil. Number Another thing that I see happen all the time, people buy, buy a bag of potting soil from a, a, a big bag store, and they water it, and they think they've watered it, and if you if you... Stick your finger down into the pot, the soil's bone dry. A lot of times, um, your potting soils and mixes and stuff like that, they'll sit for months, years on a shelf because it doesn't go bad. But it does become hydrophobic, which means it basically repels water. So when you open a new thing of potting soil, if it's dry, make sure that it actually will absorb water. And if not, if you have the time, the best thing to do is just throw it in your compost pile, spread it out, Forget it. 
If you, if, or you can get a wedding agent. Alvar Gel works okay as a wedding agent, and you can look up how to do that. Or you could basically just put it in a bucket and saturate it and, and knead it like bread dough until it starts absorbing water. Then it's going to be really, really wet. You need to kind of let it drain out a bit, and then you can use it. Because otherwise what will happen is you'll water the hell out of it, it'll look wet, it'll be bone dry, and everything will die. And that's something people just don't know. No one talks about it. No one explains it. No one really understands when it happens. Uh, so make sure your, your, your soil is actually not just good quality, but it hasn't gone hydrophobic on you. Um, get your lights close to the plant. Do less plants in bigger containers. If you're going to start your plant early, you don't need to be putting out little plants with one set of true leaves on them. You know, grow a mean, angry, bushy little pepper plant. I'd rather see you grow a pepper plant that's four inches tall and got a stalk on it already as thick as almost your, your little finger than, than the ones you get in the stores that's eight inches tall with a long, thin stalk. So work on getting that bushy form and you'll be much happier. Um, Let's talk about also using what's around you. Because all we always think about with this homesteading is, I want to do everything myself, I want to do everything myself. Humans are, are, are community creatures. And we talk about being like our ancestors. Our ancestors didn't try to do everything themselves, and they didn't try to do everything on their land. One of the biggest things they did is they foraged. And our ancestors, shit, me, when I was a kid, and my grandparents, and my great-uncles, and my dad, and my uncles, we, we went out every year, we went mushroom foraging, We went out for spongies and uh, uh, puffballs, ram's heads. Uh, when you got lucky, chanterelles or morals. And, I mean, that was just a huge part of what we ate. And we were eating like kings and we didn't even know it. We hadn't, I didn't know. I didn't know that, like, you go to a fine restaurant and, and buy, like, a $75 plate of food. And they're proud of the fact that there's a little clump of mataki mushrooms on there. Mataki. Yeah, they're ram's horns. Or ram's heads. And I, I was going out and you're like, oh, there's a, a pretty nice one. It's like friggin' 15 pounds cutting it off, going home with a half a pickup truck load of them. Find out what's available for foraging. We used to forage uh, wild strawberries, wild blueberries. Down here, there's places, if you look around enough in Texas, where um, not every corporation plants ornamental plants. There's quite a few office parks around here where they planted pecans out by the highway. They don't care. And you'll see there at certain times of the year, you'll see 20, 30 people with buckets picking up pecans. Blackberries do well in Texas. There's places you can forage those. When we lived in Arkansas, black cherry, persimmon, find what's available and forage it. This is part of homesteading, getting into the hunter-gatherer mindset, fishing and hunting. What's available? Wherever you live, there's probably somewhere you can acquire fish without buying a $75,000 bass boat. Really, there probably is. We're like 20 bucks worth of gear. You can go out and start bringing fish home. It might take you a while to learn what's up, but you can do it. Hunting. Yeah, if you're, if you're spending, you know, $7,500 to go on a trophy mule deer hunt in, in Wyoming, great. But it's recreation. It's a vacation. Uh, you get a meat as a byproduct, but you're not, You're not saving money. You're not, you're not, you're not feeding your family from a standpoint of a high ROI. But there's, you know, how, how much does a 22 shell cost? And every 22 shell could be a dead squirrel. 
You know, or is there is there opportunities for hunting that people don't really pay attention to where you are? Where I grew up in Pennsylvania, if you couldn't do it, it's because you didn't know how. Here there's a land access issue and things like that, so it's not as easy. But fishing here is just so much better. So find what works your strength and use fishing, hunting, foraging. Barter with your neighbors, whether it's direct barter. You know, if your neighbor has a black mission fig tree, I guarantee you if that's a big established tree, they are not using all those figs. Don't plant one. Talk to them. What do you like that you don't have? Apricots. Plant an apricot tree. Exchange. Or can you buy with them? Look at the local economy. Local markets and farmers markets. See, to me, homesteading, part of homesteading would be things like, if I need something, the first place I'm going to look is Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace for my area. Just to keep the money local. Just to establish more relationships. Just to save money. If I have more money, I can do more work on my property with that money. So that gives me more freedom, which is the reason we're doing this in the first place. So things like that I, I find to be you know, relevant to this discussion. Local markets and farmers markets. If I need more beef, I'm going to go to the dude down the road and buy another half a cow. Right now, I got the, free, the freezer so full, I don't have, I don't, he called me this year and said, you want another one? I said, I don't have room for it. But yeah, I mean, why, why wouldn't I? I pay less for it. It's a higher quality product. I'm dealing with a neighbor. This is part of hosting because I'm now relying on my local area. What can I get from it? And, Think about the private economy. We call this the gray market, the black market, et cetera, and agorism. Um, but just, I prefer the term the private market. If, if you can do business with a neighbor for some of your needs, and they can do business with you for some of their needs, and it's between you, them, and what we call the fence post down here, it's, it, 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 I don't see that as a, I think it's a private market. It's not a secret. It's private. Is it really anybody's business? That you and your neighbor are doing business. I don't happen to think that it is. And to me, I find that to be a very appealing component of getting into more of a homestead-based economy. The more people we can get doing this, the more of those things we can do, and the more liberty and freedom we have for ourselves. The more autonomy we have, not as just a family, but as a, a town or a city or a region. It's true liberty. Here's some final final ideas here. Number one. In all of this, don't forget the enjoyment. Create enjoyment like fire pits and we just built an outdoor kitchen and stuff. And enjoy your space with your family. Part of homesteading is if you've done it right, you don't generally want to leave. Let's say that again. If you've done it right, you don't generally want to leave. You know, people get really excited about going out to eat. We, we enjoy it. I mean, it's something we talk about quite a bit. But, you know, I have to say, I don't ever get excited about leaving. I like it here. And so part of homesteading is an understanding that, like, people have gotten today where, like, they, they do, like, half of their life is spent working to have enough money to pay for their homes. Because when it comes to paying for your home, you're paying for, you know, your mortgage, your rent, plus your insurance, you know, plus the interest on that, plus your electricity, plus when shit breaks, any improve, like all that you're spending all that money in most Americans, if you look, it's like half their income goes to providing this place. And what's the first thing they say on Saturday? Where are we going to go? How about staying in this place that you spent so much of your life working for? And most people don't want to because it's sterile. 
Make it an enjoyable place. One day, when I came home from traveling, uh, when I used to travel for work, we lived in Pennsylvania, my, my son, my wife, and I. And I think we, like, they came to get me at the airport because it was a lo the, the close local airport, and it was, just made sense for her to pick me up. And it was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon when we got home. And I really didn't have to do any more work for the day. And somehow my son and I just started talking about, you know, doing something. And I didn't want to go nowhere. I was happy to be home, even then. And there was this big pile of bricks. And it was left over from the house was built. And the house had been built in like 74 or something. This old pile of bricks. And uh, I'm like, why don't we build a fire pit? And it wasn't complicated. We didn't get mortar. We didn't go to the store. We dug a hole and we put the bricks in like three levels. Like you put them vertical, then horizontal, then vertical around it. We built this big fire pit. Like five foot diameter. But we got some old wood laying over there. Let's go build a fire. We build a fire. He calls his friend, hey, we built a fire. His friend, Zach, comes over. And uh, he goes, oh, there's a fire. Right? We go get some chairs, radio, play some music, call up Zach's parents. All of a sudden, we've got half the neighborhood, uh, not half the neighborhood, like four families in our yard hanging out because there's a fire there. TVs are off. We're not going to the movies. We're not going to a restaurant. A couple beers. It's like a camping in your backyard. If you're doing it right, you don't want to leave. Always look for revenue opportunities and side hustles as well. What is something that's happening here that can put some money back in my pocket? Especially if it's in that local economy we talked about. Spend time in your kitchen. Learn to cook. You do all this work to produce food, learn to cook it really well. Or learn to take that local food and cook it really well. Take your time. Go slow. Especially on things that are costly or hard to change. You put in two little garden beds, you decide you hate gardening, it's not a big deal. If they're raised beds, you pull the wood out, spread the dirt out, throw some grass seed down, do something different. You know, I talked about doing fish. Make sure it's what you want because you go bring a, you know, a used uh, above-ground pool in your area or rent a, 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 an excavator and dig a deep hole or something like that. It's just a little bit more complicated. You put in a 20-foot-long hoogle mound that's six foot tall. You see what I'm saying? So the more it will take in money to do it or in logistics to change it back to the way it was, the more you should think about it. But don't get parsley disease either. Parsley disease is when I give you a recipe to make chicken soup, and the recipe includes a handful of fresh parsley. You have everything else. And you don't have any parsley, so you don't make the soup, and you sit there wishing you had parsley. You get on the phone and start calling people, where can I get parsley? Don't do that. So with small things, go ahead and give it a shot, but take your time, go slow, think more when it's costly or hard to change. Do I really need to do this? Does this really make sense? If you're going to spend $5,000 on a project, and you're doing it because it's going to make food for you, how long is it going to take for it to make $5,000 worth of food? Those are fair questions to ask yourself. Eliminate work. Figure out what you can eliminate. That's the Masanuba Fukuoka world, right? Instead of saying, what else can I do, what can I not do? So in every way you can, try to make work less. Automate, because then what would you do if you didn't have to do it, as my buddy David says? you know, If you didn't have to do it, what would you do? You might find you'd do a lot more. If something's not necessary, if a step can be eliminated, and it doesn't either hurt it, 
or you find that it's not helping enough to be worth it, stop doing it. Something makes you miserable, do something else. Stop doing it. Um, be honest about what you like. So many people, I find them like, like justifying what they're doing because they're just trying so hard to get this really cool homestead, and they really don't enjoy what they're doing. If you don't like something, stop doing it. It doesn't make any sense. We're doing this for enjoyment. We're doing this for freedom. Now, freedom is, you're free to make yourself miserable, but really, I don't think that's how you should use freedom. You're doing it wrong. Under this same line of thinking, we, we talk about lifestyle design. And lifestyle design is not just designing your life as a, as a macro, but also the micro design of different components within it. So, you know, we want to eliminate work. We want to make things efficiently. We want to automate But we want to be honest about what we like. We also want to be honest about how much time we have to actually do stuff every week. you, you got to understand that if you, if you decide that, okay, I have two hours a week to work, and then you design to that, two hours, that means that two hours is there whether you want it to be or not. Now, we can design some seasonality into it. So maybe we're doing an hour's work in the winter and two and a half hours in the summer. But whatever the baseline is, it's going to be there. And I find that most people underestimate and lie to themselves. So I would say that if you say, I have two hours a week, I have two hours a week that I can use uh, in my life for doing this stuff that I'm comfortable with, you should design an hour and a half maximum into your tasks a week. You should leave yourself at least a 25% buffer. If you say you got four hours, you design three. And really think if you say you got four hours. Four hours is more than people realize. Now, there's times when it works, and, and you know, even having more work than you need to do is a good thing. Back when I first started this show, I had a garden. I had like eight, four-by-eight beds in, in Arlington, Texas. And I, I did this show from my car every day. I drove 55 miles home. And when I got home, I really wasn't a good human being for a while. I needed to unwind from my day of shit, just to be blunt. And I would kiss my wife and grin and, and, and try to be nice, but I knew I wasn't yet. I would get a beer or a drink, you know, of some sort. I'd go out the backyard, and, you know, it was late enough in the day. I wasn't going to kill my plants by doing it. I would water my gardens with a hose. And it would probably be a job that would take about 15 minutes, and I'd take about 30 to do it. And it let me come back to humanity. And that was okay at that point in my life. At this point in my life... I want to go turn that button to 15 minutes and walk away from it, if that makes sense. So you got to think about how much time you really have to spend, want to spend, et cetera. Be honest about what you like and budget less time than you, than you think you have in the design. And next I would say, and this is so important today, don't judge yourself by YouTube videos, Instagram pictures, Facebook posts of other people's stuff. And I don't care what you're doing, whether it's homesteading. I just did a video on fish tanks about this on YouTube. People post the stuff that looks the best. There are people that will, like, hey, look, I killed all this shit. Hey, look, this shit died. Hey, look, all my fish are dead. Like, I'll do that. I'll show it. Hey, it's screwed up. This is what happens. So, you know, most people are never going to do that. They will spend time to not only take a picture of that tomato plant that shows the best tomato on the plant, but the best angle to show that tomato in. Because there's a little mark on it. So we're going to move over here where you can't really see it. 
and then they're going to use a filter, and they're going to enhance the color, and they're going to do all that. Kind of, and if you're you if you're judging your garden and your homestead on against pictures and videos on on the internet, it's like a poor young girl, so blinded by our culture. 18-year-old young kid in high school pining for some boy that's not interested in her instead of the 12 that are beating each other up to get to her. Walking into a grocery store and looking at a picture of an airbrushed model on the cover of a magazine and judging herself against that picture. You're doing the same thing in a different way. And, and as a grown-ass adult, you say, poor girl, why is she doing that to herself? And then you turn around and you judge your tomato plant against tomato plants on the best pictures that there are of tomato plants on friggin' Instagram or whatever. Don't do that. Just don't judge your results on your neighbor's garden. Ask him how he got good results and do what he did and you'll get there. Don't judge your, res judge your results on how much it does for you, how much you enjoy it, how much it brings to you, and what you learned by it. And in spite of that, keep a journal and take pictures. If you want to, And I'm all for Instagram accounts and YouTube and Facebook and all that, sharing everything you're doing. I think it's wonderful. I think the more people that would honestly share what they have is great, but I think it's more important for you to have this for yourself. Keep a journal fertilized on this day. Notice this type of insect damage. If you noticed a certain insect pest for the first time on a certain date this year. Well, next year you need to be prepared for it and see if it comes back. And if it does, is it the same as last year? Keep, you know, Thomas Jefferson has the garden book. It's a book I recommend everybody add to their library. Have your own and take pictures. Because there are times when things don't go so well on this property. I'll lose it. Like this, this, this year started out to be the year that I thought I was going to be posting pictures of five-gallon buckets full of fruit. I mean, it rained, and then it rained again, and then it rained some more. And we did not get torrential rains. We got good rains, soaking rains. And we had a very mild winter last year. And the pests weren't that bad. And we got rid of the big duck flock, so things weren't like ravaging the landscape. It seems so beautiful. And our spring, the stuff that was early fruiting, we got so much fruit. It was great. We did have some five-gallon bucket loads. There was a lot that went on the ground because I just didn't have time to pick it all. And the herbs were everywhere, and the wildflowers were everywhere. And we were eating salads made with freaking spiderwort flowers and locust blossoms and wild garlic blossoms and wild garlic. And it was so great. And summer came. And... Then the rain stopped. Not only did the rain stop, even though we were in like red alert drought level through our summer. After the we had the wettest year on record with a 90-day period of the most severe drought the area's ever had in the same year. Okay, this is what we had. But even in that, we got some rain. No. They got some rain. Who are they? They are the people that live one mile south of me and one mile north of me. There were days that I stood outside of my property and I heard rain. I could see rain. Lots of rain that made the creeks rise. And not a, I swear it was like being hexed and cursed, not a drop would fall on my property. I would see one of those big bands of showers coming in, like a big, you know, front coming in. And as it would get to me, I could watch on the radar, and it was like I was hexed. The, 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 the line of rain would literally form a hole in the middle over my house, pass me, and then once it passed me by a couple miles, reform. It did this over and over again. I went from May 20th 
to mid-August without a drop of rain on my property. While it was 100 plus degrees. Trees that were 15 years old, at least native trees that had never once received a drop of irrigation. Not all of them, but some of them died. I lost four trees. I lost four of the hundreds of trees that I planted. I lost four that I planted. I got down on myself. Man, I lost four trees. Ignoring the fact that a 15, 20-year-old oak tree in the woods on my neighbor's property died, gave up the ghost. My grafted tree died. I did something wrong. And then I did something. I reminded myself. I said, self, you shot a video the first year you were here when you had all these plants, many of which you've changed since then. But what it shows is the property before you planted hardly anything. You and Josiah, your intern, walked the whole property. Kelly Hernan followed you. Watch that video. It's an hour and 40 minutes long. I watched that video. I watched myself and Josiah walk around what was essentially a bare, barren desert of a property. And then in the height of the strata, I looked at my property and said, wow, wow, look what I did. Look what I did. Look at this place. And I started thinking, a couple dozen native trees died. And where I designed the systems, only four weak young trees died. The rest made it. And I was like, this year sucks on some levels. But you know what? I feel pretty good. You will not understand the transformation of your property because you're going to watch it happen a little bit at a time, even with a journal. Take pictures. Pick 10 spots on your property. Take a picture every month. Keep them in a folder. Make slideshows out of them. And watch change over time. You'll learn things, but you'll also reinforce that you are making a difference, that you are doing a good job. Because we're all going to have things that screw up. It's going to happen. You're going to get those bad years. But when you realize you came through that bad year with more resiliency than the native plants around you, you feel pretty good. Keep a journal, take pictures. I hope that this show was good for you guys. I wanted to make today's show more about how to think about this stuff than just the stuff to do. We can talk about stuff to do until we're blue in the face, but in the end, we're all, if we're smart, going to do the things that work best for us. So I hope that, you know, I kind of fulfilled that, that, that goal today for you guys. I got you thinking about this a different way. And I do mean, don't get down on yourself. Let me tell you what happened today. You know why the show went out so late today? It's 4.15 right now. Not when you're listening to it, but right now, at this point in my life, as you hear my voice, it's 4.15 in the afternoon. By 4.15 in the afternoon, unless something's gone drastically wrong, the show is published. The social media is done. The email is sent. The Patreon post is done. I am done for the day. And today's a Tuesday. And Tuesdays have a track record of me getting done earlier than every other day except Friday. And here it is, 4.15, I'm, I'm still podcasting. You know why? Because I was about an hour into today's podcast, and I saw Audacity go, Audacity has stopped working. We are crashing. Abort, abort, abort. Danger, Will Robinson. And being the slick guy that I am, I did what I could to shut it down, and I recovered 25 minutes, and I lost About 40, 45 minutes of content had to redo it. It happens. But when you look back at what you've done and you compare it to where you started, you feel pretty good about it. It's the same thing, man.
So anyway, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Hope I got across to you the big things that I wanted to get across to you. And uh, now at the end of the show, I want to remind you, if you like the show and you want to support us in the work that we do, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You're going to shop online. You're going to buy something. Go there and check things out on Amazon from there. That's all you got to do. No matter what you end up buying, you help support us. But I have a product for you today. I always have products for review. Everything I put on for review, I own, I use, I spent my money on, or I wouldn't ask you to. Today I have the Incuview All-in-One Automatic Egg Incubator. We talked about chickens, ducks, and quail today. All of them lay eggs. Sometimes we want to eat those eggs. Sometimes we want to make more birds. This is the best incubator for the consumer on the market. Let me explain to you how good this incubator is at what it did, does. When we used to keep lots of chickens, I did three runs of chickens. In three runs, I put 76 eggs in that incubator, or 78 eggs in that incubator. Out of 78 eggs, I hatched 76 birds that survived. 76 of 78. They say, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. I would agree, but I tell you, you're going to get pretty close to the number of eggs you have if you use the Incuview all-in-one. This is a great time of year to be hatching birds, to get them in egg production before fall. It really is. And I'll tell you what I love about the Incuview. It is a set-it-and-forget-it tool. It's, you can be a technophobe. You can still work it. You can set your temperatures, your times, your rotation. It's easy. It's also made of plastic and, fi uh, plastic and plexiglass. And it's lightweight. It controls the humidity. It does everything for under $200. Um, you can cram about 26 eggs in it at a time if they're full-size eggs. You can hatch way more than that if you're doing quail eggs. You can do, I think, about 16 goose eggs if you want to do goose eggs or big turkey eggs. Um, it's so good, if I wanted to do 75 to 100 eggs at a batch, I'd buy three of these before one of those big giant machines. That's how good it is. But it's lightweight. And it'll fit in like one of the biggest, if it fits, it ships uh, priority mailboxes. So if you have friends and, and groups that you're part of, and you are only going to use an incubator once a year, you can totally ship this thing for not much money and cost share it. it, it because it's so light, it has no, no way it's getting overweight. It's not big. Turn the dome over. It fits in a pretty small box. It's great. It does everything. You don't need a turner. You don't need a separate humidifier. It does everything, and it has a high hatch rate. That's why I love it. Everything I recommend at T-SPAS, I own it, I use it, and it works. And it's maximum value for the you know value for the dollar ratio. It's always what I do. You can always support us by shopping on tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. And we were in a week where we're doing all songs about school. Not really for today's show much, but... I had never heard this song, and when I saw the title of this song, it made me sad. And when I listened to this song, I thought it sounds really kind of cool. It's kind of a cool, you know, kind of uh, alternative rock song. Uh, but it also makes me sad. Now, I watched the video, and it made me laugh. Because the video, and I'm going to play the whole thing from the video for you. It starts out where you hear, like, this old 80s song, and uh, it's, it's, it's the band, supposedly, when they're kids in high school, trying out for a talent show that they don't get in. And... Um, there's like flashbacks through the whole video where like the cool kids are, you know, put a kick me sign on the kid's back and it's the hot cheerleader chick is getting another kid to drink X-lax and he shits himself. And it's like, it's so miserable. And then when it switches to modern day, uh, all of the dorky kids that were in this band are now like rich and famous and they're playing the reunion and they're, they're kind of getting some payback on, on the kids that remain to them. 
Well, that's entertaining and all. But the concept that high school never ends. And, and when I looked up the song facts on this, and I put a link to it for you, the, the lead singer that wrote the song along with another band member said that it's kind of a sad commentary, but for many people this song rings true, that you know the privileged are still privileged. The dorks are still the dorks. The ones that always got the hot girls still get the hot girls, etc. Even though sometimes, you know, it's the ones that were the, the you know the, the least appreciated do the best in life that a lot of things stay the same. And everybody still cares about you know who who's sleeping with who, who's got the best car, etc. And I thought, you know, I used a phrase today in the show. If you're doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. If if high school didn't end for you when high school ended then you're doing life wrong. High school is a microcosm of bullshit. It is a forced it is a forced group of people forced together against their will with very little recourse compared to the real world. The stuff that kids do to each other to bully each other in high school, if you do it to somebody in an office area, you know, an office space, you either get fired and or arrested and or sued. And or you get your ass beat by the person that can't beat your ass but takes a baseball bat to your skull. And and sometimes even the government goes, well, yeah, you know, he's defending himself. It, it is amazing. High school is a is basically, in my opinion, analogous to a minimum security prison. Let's say more minimum than any actual prison. But it, it works a lot like a minimum security prison with daily and weekend work release. High school is fake. High school is not real. High school does indeed end. And what I hate about this song, I like the sound of it, I like the video, it's funny. I get the point. But what I hate about this song is the kid that's in 11th grade that's listening to this song that's thinking, oh my God, it really is going to be like this for the rest of my life. No, it's not. Not unless you want it to be. Not unless you want it to be. You know, I, I look back at high school and I think there were some people that were not so nice to me. I don't care. If their life is good, great. If their life isn't, I don't know. I didn't have nothing to do with it. And there were some people I wasn't so nice to. And when I've had the opportunity, I've, you know, as, as a grown-ass adult, said, you know, I know I wasn't very nice to you. I'm sorry. And the, the few times I've had the opportunity to do it, it seemed like the person really, really was like, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't need it from anybody. I don't care. It doesn't matter. My life is awesome. My life is awesome because I made it awesome. And it's nothing like high school. If you feel, if you're still living in your high school days for good or bad, you're doing life wrong. Live today and in the now. And if you are in high school, if you hate it, high school ends. If you love it, You better figure out how to love it in the real world because high school ends. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. I'm to yourself for it, even if they don't. Thank you. Love each and every one of you. Guys, don't give up your day jobs. <laughs> Man, you guys suck. <laughs> 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 Don't worry. After high school, everything will be better. Let's go.